0: that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of Bob, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. Just cleaning up a little. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Welcome to week two of the good book, all about this book, the Bible, often referred to as God's Word, and often described by many people throughout history as the good book. But not everyone would describe it by the word good, and I think what prevents people, maybe what prevents you from describing it as good, is our issues or our questions. See, some grew up, some of us grew up in an environment or a home where we were taught or told it's God's word, it's all true, respect it, obey it, and so from a young age, you just were like, man, if the Bible says it, that settles it. You know, you were taught the stories, you probably read some stories, and and you always believed it to be true. Uh, Others of us grew up in a home that didn't... Maybe have a Bible and in a church where we're encouraged not to read it because it was the pastor's or the priest's responsibility to tell you everything that was in it. And you may know some Bible stories and, and now you may, you may even have a Bible sitting on a shelf at home collecting dust, but you've never viewed it as God's word. You've never viewed it as all true. And for you, the Bible says it doesn't settle anything. Others, maybe you maybe used to believe what was in it, but now it's not that simple anymore because somewhere, someone along the way pointed out what else the Bible says. They brought to your attention something that didn't get talked about, and you didn't know about what was in there before, and now you have some difficult time reconciling what's in the Bible with the world you live in, with the reality that you live in, and you just can't look the other way, so you've chosen to walk away or are considering walking away because of what's in it. Now, regardless of your experiences with the Bible, I've observed that almost everyone has some issues with the Bible, and for some Your issue is just you want to know it and it's so dang confusing and it's so dang overwhelming. Or maybe for you, your issue is that, man, you're just like, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's contradicting, I think. Someone told me that. Uh, For some, your issue is that, we talked about before, it doesn't align with your worldview. And then maybe for you, your issue is that it's hurtful because how you've seen others use it as a weapon, either against you or against other people. Now, the interesting thing is, if most of us were honest, some of our issues may not even be based on what we have personally read or what we have personally studied, but instead based on our past or our upbringing or what someone told us. But regardless of that, almost everyone has some issues or some questions with the Bible, so we decided to do a series to address some of those. However, just to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we mean when we say the Bible, last week I did this super fast Bible overview. Remember, I didn't breathe for 30 minutes last week if you were here. Uh, And I can't do that all again, but here's just a quick summary of the high points. First, 66 total books make up what we now call the Bible. And in the Bible, there's two major sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. We talked about last week that the Old Testament is the story of God and the Hebrew people, which became known as the Israelites, who became known as the Jews. God and the Hebrew people and God's covenant with them. Old Testament has 39 books, 28 different authors, written over a period of about 2,000 years. All of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, written before Jesus. And interestingly enough, what we call the Old Testament was always referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures until about the 4th century. We'll talk about that a little later in the series. So we have the Old Testament and then we have the New Testament. New Testament is the story of Jesus and his church and God's new covenant available for all people. 27 books, 9 different authors and spans a period of less than 100 years all written all the new what we call the new testament books written were written after Jesus death and resurrection but within the first century last week we also discovered the ultimate purpose of these 66 books or these documents that make up our bible and that is the purpose of the bible is not primarily for our information but for our transformation See, many people pick up a Bible to try to find answers to all of life's questions, but you need to know that the Bible is not a book of answers. I can think of plenty of questions that the Bible doesn't answer. Why? Because that's not the primary purpose of the Bible. God didn't reveal what He did through the writers of Scripture to answer all of our questions or simply just to give us information. He revealed what He did primarily for our transformation. We discovered that the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to Jesus, equip us to follow Jesus so that we're transformed by Jesus into everything God created us to be. And we said last week that the Bible is reliable and is relevant in achieving that ultimate purpose. Which means, and I told you this last week, my goal by the end of this series is not to answer all of your questions or try to address every single issue that we all have. Mainly because I can't possibly do all that stuff. It's it's just impossible. My goal by the end of this series is that we all take one step closer to viewing the Bible and engaging with it through the proper lens. Ultimately, so that God's intended purpose for giving us the Bible, transformation, occurs in your life. Now, after being a pastor for many years, I've observed that many of us know some Bible stories, but few of us know the story of how we got the Bible. And it may be surprising to you, understanding the story of how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. Because as we're going to see, the story of how we got the Bible sheds light on what's actually in the Bible. Now it's not important for young children to know how we got the Bible because it would bore them to death. But as adults, as people who get older, it's an important story and it's an awesome story because if you don't know the story of how we got the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. See, I've heard so many people say the reason they've walked away from faith or walked away from church or walked away from God is because they don't believe all the stuff in the Bible anymore. And I get it. It's hard to embrace what's in it if you don't know how we got it. I discovered so many people's issues would be resolved if they had a better understanding of how we got the Bible to begin with. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the story about how we got what we ended up what ended up being called the Bible. The reality of it is though is this. The way we get a Bible is not the way the world got the Bible. The way we get a Bible is not the way the world got a Bible. We get a Bible and it's all chaptered, versed, mapped and wrapped. I mean, it's got two big sections, it's got titles, it's got headers, it's got verses. It's all bundled together. These these are actually some of My Bibles. This is the first Bible that I ever got. My parents gave it to me when I was in high school, or after I put my faith in Jesus. And it's really nice, crusty fake leather, and they got my name in gold on it. You you anyone else have a Bible with their name with gold on it? Anyone? Yeah, those are awesome. Uh, And then, and then a few years later, I bought this one for myself because I didn't want the crusty fake leather one. I wanted a little more, you know. And so I bought this one for myself, and this was my Bible for years and years and years that. Uh, that I used and carried around, but when I went to school in uh, Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, uh, you know, I walked everywhere, and you know, carrying this wheelbarrow of a Bible around got pretty heavy in a backpack. So I wanted to get a smaller Bible, and so uh, on on campus they had a they had a bookstore and they had a a discount like a, like book section, and this one was there, and it was almost free. Because it used to belong to a guy named Luis Arcel. <laughs> and never then they scratched his name off, and I was like, sold. I'll buy that one, and I bought Luis's Bible, and I've been carrying it in my backpack ever since. So this, this Bible is with me every single day in my backpack, so thank you, Luis, for turning it back in. Um, and then I got this Bible a few years ago. This is a big one, too. Uh, and this is the one I read every single morning. Every single morning, spending time with God, I, you know, and it's just got just notes and all throughout. It. I think I've read through it three different times. So this is the one I read every – so th- those are some of – those are some of my Bibles. And, but, you know, when I got a Bible, just like if you got a Bible, it was all wrapped and mapped and versed and put together. But the problem is that's not how the world got the Bible. The story of that sheds light on what the stories that are actually in this. But what you also need to know is that you can't understand the story of how, how, the, of how we got the Bible without knowing the reason we even have it. So today I'm going to talk about the reason that we even have the collection of documents in in what we now call the Bible. And you may be surprised to know the reason we have the Bible does not begin in the beginning. The reason we have what ended up being called the Bible begins toward the middle of the end. With the first four books in the New Testament that we now call the Gospels. Or would the Gospels mean the good news? And they're, they're about the life and the, and the story about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They're called the Gospels. We call them the Gospels. But let's not call them that yet because they wouldn't be called that until way down the road long after they were written. Now one of the authors of what we now call the Gospels was a guy by the name of Luke. And Luke had this wealthy friend named Theophilus. And Theophilus had heard some st- enough stories about Jesus, enough stories about Jesus' life, and he'd heard stories about Jesus' death, and he'd heard enough stories about Jesus' resurrection through the eyewitnesses of Jesus that he ended up becoming a follower of Christ. He ended up putting his faith in Jesus by asking Jesus to be the forgiver of his sins and leader of his life. And so now he's a follower of Jesus, and he knew some of these stories he'd verbally heard, but he wanted to know the whole story. He wanted to know, though, how this whole thing transpired. And so Luke decided to sit down and write Theophilus, an orderly account. And once again, we know it as the Gospel of Luke, but let's not call it that yet. Luke is simply a Greek doctor in the first century who is documenting the life and words and works of Jesus. And here's how Luke starts his document. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account or a document of the things that have been fulfilled or the things that have happened among us. See, something had happened worth documenting. And the interesting thing Luke is saying is, I'm not the only one trying to document all this. That's trying to put down the story of the events of what happened. By the way, this is very unusual. Historically, we have virtually no multiple written accounts of the same event or series of events from the first, from the first century. So the life of Jesus in, stands out in some ways by itself, all by itself in that regard. Luke goes on. Just as they, the things that happened among us, were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, by the way, not the beginning of time, but the beginning of Jesus' life, I too, Luke is saying, along with many other people, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And that title gives us the idea that Theophilus was an important and very well-known person. So that, and then Luke goes on to say why he decided to write him this document, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is saying, hey, after taking the time to carefully investigate everything, by interviewing all the eyewitnesses, I am now ready to write an orderly account so that you can have certainty of the things that you have heard, of the certainty of the things that you've been taught, so that you can have certainty that your faith in Jesus is grounded in historical truth. Now, this is important to know. When Luke was writing this document, he had no idea that this would ever exist. Luke could not begin to fathom that 2,000 years later, the documents that he and others wrote about Jesus would be collected and bound together in a single book. Luke didn't know he was writing one of the Gospels of of our Bible. Luke is simply creating an orderly account of Jesus' life based on the eyewitnesses, on the apostles that he interviewed. Now, without Luke knowing it, without Luke fully understanding it, he actually tells us the story of how our Bible began and the reason that we even have a Bible today. See, Luke, he documented many things that Jesus claimed in this, in this document. He, and he, one of the things he documents is that Jesus claimed himself to be the Messiah or the Savior or the Anointed One or the Son of God. But then Luke documents that Jesus was crucified and died on a Roman c- cross. And Luke documents that when he died, game over. The faith of Jesus' followers died with him. The hope of Jesus' followers died with him. See, the day Jesus died, there was going to be no story to tell. Because Luke is giving an orderly account of what happened, he tells us the story of this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Jewish Supreme Court and very well known, very famous in, in, in Judaism in the first century in, in Jerusalem. So he tells us the story of how Joseph of Arimathea went to the cross that Jesus was crucified on and took Jesus' body down from the cross. And Joseph didn't take his body down because he believed that Jesus was the Savior. He didn't take his body down because Joseph didn't take it down because he thought he was going to get his name in the Gospel of Luke someday. He didn't know that wasn't even... On his mind. He took it down because he had so much respect for Jesus. He respected him, but he was also filled with disappointment because at that moment when Jesus was dead on the cross, he's going, Jesus is no longer who he claimed to be. He couldn't, he can't be because he's dead. And Luke's going, I carefully investigated all this and here's what happened. Jump to Luke 23. He says, then he, Joseph and his servants, Joseph Arimathea and his servants, took it, Jesus' body, down... From the cross, wrapped it in, in, in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, which no one had yet been laid. And Luke gives all this detail because he's a doctor who's detail-oriented and he wanted to write an orderly de- detailed account. Luke goes on. It was, the, it was preparation day and, on the sab, uh, and the Sabbath was about to begin. He's saying, just so you know, the exact day. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph the, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And why? Because they were going to come back and re-embalm Jesus' body because Jesus was dead and they expected him to stay dead. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience with the command. This is so important. In this moment, in this moment, no one believed Jesus' message. In this moment, there's no followers of Christ In this moment, there's no church. In this moment, all of Jesus' followers had lost faith in who Jesus claimed to be because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and Messiahs don't die. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and the Son of God can't be killed. Dead people stay dead. In this moment, there's just brokenhearted women and disillusioned disciples who are hiding out of fear for their life. And if it had ended there, there would be no the Bible. If it had ended there, there would be no followers of Christ. There would be no church. We wouldn't be here today. If it ended there, there would be no accounts of Luke that we now call the Gospel of Luke. Which you need to know, this is so important. Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus didn't end on a Roman cross. If the story of Jesus had ended there, there would be no story. There would be no reason to write anything. Luke tells us the reason that he and the, and the, and the you know what I'm saying and many many other people I preached twice today already I'm running low here and many other people have chosen to put their faith in Jesus is because Jesus rose from the grave and many people saw him alive. Luke tells us the reason that he and many other people are trying to, to document all this is that it, trying to document the life of Jesus is because he rose from the grave and. many many saw him alive now luke writes that after jesus came back to life that jesus apostles came out of hiding and they went into the streets of jerusalem and they faced down the very people who had crucified jesus and because luke's trying to give an orderly account of jesus life and beyond he wrote what some of Jesus' apostles said in the face of persecution, in the face of imprisonment, in the face of death in the New Testament book that we now call Acts. Or Acts of the Apostles. But let's not call it that yet, because it wouldn't be called that until much later down the road. It was simply Luke documented what he had carefully investigated from eyewitnesses. And here's one sentence from one sermon from Peter. And Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples. This is here's one sentence from one sermon that Peter from Peter that Luke documents. And Luke Peter says, God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Peter's saying, We didn't hear about it. We didn't read about it. We physically saw him. And because of what they saw, the Jesus movement called the church was birthed just a few weeks after Jesus was killed in the city of Jerusalem. But still, no, the Bible. Luke admits right up front, I'm not the only one trying to document what happened. Let's go back to what Luke said earlier. He says, "Many, many, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled or the things that have happened among us." And the question that we should all wrestle to the ground, regardless of where we're at, and especially if you've thought, of, you know, you said, "I'm walked away" or "I'm considering walking away," the question that we should all wrestle to the ground is, "Why so many?" Like, it's unusual now for multiple people to, to document the same event in detail, but it was very unusual then. It was very expensive then. Many people were illiterate and couldn't even read what was, what, what was written. Why would Luke and so many others feel, feel compelled to document the events that happened in the first century in the city of Jerusalem? And the answer is undeniable. It says something extraordinary had happened. Not something extraordinary was written. That would come much later. But something extraordinary was happening. Something that had to be preserved. Because after all, Peter and the boys, Peter and the other apostles, Jesus' team, the one who, who, who were with Jesus, who saw and heard everything Jesus did, who saw him die and rise from the grave, the ones that Jesus gave authority to, Peter and the boys, they're not getting any younger. And their lives were threatened constantly. So some of them sat down and either wrote or dictated the experience, their experience with Jesus and what they saw. Peter, he dictated, introduced to him a second ago, he dictated his account to a young Greek named Mark. See, Peter, he's a fisherman by trade. Very smart, but probably illiterate. So he sat down with Mark in the 50s, only 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he gave Mark his story. And Mark documented it. And this document became, came to be known as the Gospel of Mark. But let's not call it that yet. It wouldn't be called that for many, many years. See, Luke said several people, many people were recording this extraordinary event. Matthew. Matthew was one of them. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector who ended up becoming one of Jesus, putting his faith in Jesus and becoming one of Jesus' 12 disciples, 12 apostles. We call it the gospel of Matthew, but before it was known as that, it was simply a document written by Matthew to first century Jews, where over and over he's over and over and over again he says, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that we've been waiting for. And he leverages many. Passages and many prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament to show how Jesus was the Messiah. And he says over and over and over again, Matthew says, all the law and the prophets, all the Hebrew scriptures point to the coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfills them. And I know this because I saw him die and then I saw him rise from the grave. I saw it with my own eyes. So there's Luke and there's Mark and there's Matthew and then there's John. Who wrote the gospel of John. John, one of Jesus' best, probably Jesus' best friend. One of the 12 apostles. And we call it the gospel of John. But John wasn't thinking Bible. John wasn't thinking gospel. I mean, John, he's toward the end of his life, probably in the 80s at some point in time. So, 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, John decided that he too needed to tell the story of Jesus and his experiences that he had with Jesus and what he physically saw. And you go, John, John, dude, you're an old man. Like, why bother? Like, many others. Have many others have other written uh, already written, and John, you know, this is so fascinating. Like you need to lock into this, like especially wherever you're at, whatever your experiences have been, lock into this because near the end of his account, John tells us the reason that he even bothered to write in the first place. And here's what John says: Jesus performed many other signs. See, John just. Just gave a list of a whole bunch of things Jesus did. And John's now toward the end of his do- uh, end of his account and he says, hey, as I'm getting ready to kind of wrap this thing up, I want you to know that this isn't the end of the story. Jesus performed many other things that I didn't write. In the presence of his disciples, which means these weren't done in secret. And John's not just talking about the 12 disciples, John's talking about the hundreds of people who saw Jesus and followed Jesus throughout his three-year ministry, all the way to his crucifixion, and then saw him after his resurrection. He said he's in the presence of many, many, many which are not recorded in this book. And you need to know that when John says this book, he's not referring to this book. John is referencing the document that he's writing. He says, there's many other things Jesus did that didn't show up in my account of the life of Jesus. And then he says something so important. But these, the ones that I have chosen, John says, are written that you. And you know who the you is? The you is whoever's going to end up reading this document from John. And what's crazy is now 2,000 years later, the you is you. The you is me. Which is nuts to think about. Like John spent all this time writing this document and had no idea how long this document was going to survive. No idea. He didn't know if this document he was writing was going to survive a day or a month or a year or five years, much less 2,000 years. And John had no idea that several hundred years later it would be wrapped together with other documents that would end up being called the Bible. John's saying, I wrote this document so that whoever happens to stumble across this document for as long as it survives knows what I saw, knows what I experienced, knows what changed my life and what changed my worldview, knows what gives me life and gives me hope. He's saying, I have, I have, but these are written that you may believe. Believe what? What's the it that John wants us to believe? See, I've seen and you've seen that the bottom line for most people who end up walking away from faith or God or church is hey, it's good for you, but I don't believe it. It's good for you, but I don't believe it. Well, the question I hope you wrestle to the ground is what's the it you don't believe? What's the it you don't believe? If you walked away from faith or you're considering walking away from faith, what is the it? See, John, an eyewitness of Jesus, Jesus' best friend who saw and heard everything Jesus said and did in his life and his death and his resurrection, is about to tell us the only it that really matters. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior, the Son of God, and that by by believing you may have life in his name. Listen, regardless of what you've heard and seen and experienced, this is the it, and it's the only it that matters. The implication, you, I mean, the implication of what John is saying here is so huge. What John is saying is he's writing this document, is that if John's account is all you have, John's account is all you'll ever need. John said, "I have written this in such a way that if this is the only document that you ever stumble across." That it's enough to give you confidence that Jesus is the Son of God, whom the Heavenly Father sent to save you and give you life. I mean, it was John who gave us the words that Jesus said to Nicodemus in what we now call John 3.16. Where he says, for God so loved the world. Jesus says, the whole world. The pagan world, the barbaric world, the Greek world, the Jewish world, the whole world, a world separated from God because of our violation of sin against Him. And that's you, and that's me, and that's everyone. He says, For God so loved the world that He sent His, that He, uh, that he gave His one and only Son. Jesus is talking in third person. And John would say, I have been face to face with whom I am confident is the Son of God, because I saw him die and then rise again. He's saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, Jesus is saying, whoever places their faith in me, asking me to be the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life, Shall not perish, will not be separated from God in this life and in the next, but instead will have eternal life. Will experience this, will experience a different kind of life in this life and the next. Jesus calls it eternal life. John is saying, if this document of mine that I am writing is the only document that you ever see, that you ever hear, it's enough. It's all you'll ever need for that. And that's amazing that John said that. Because he said those words 200 years, over 200 years, before this book was ever assembled. See, for years I and many other people have been directing people not to read the Bible, not to start in Genesis and then hit Exodus and Leviticus. You'll love that and keep plowing your way through. We've been directing people to read John. And after reading it, I've watched so many people put their faith in Jesus. So many people ask Jesus to be the forgive of their sins and leader of their life. And maybe that's some of your stories who are sitting right in here. Why? Why would people put their faith in Jesus after reading the book of John? Because if it's all you ever had, it's all you'll ever need to know and to put your faith in the reason for the Bible, which is Jesus himself. It's kind of a big idea. Jesus didn't physically write the Bible, but Jesus is the reason we have it. Jesus is the reason we have it. The story of how we got our Bible begins at Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is the reason. We have the collection of documents that we now call the Bible. Now, it's important to know that the Gospels that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the other documents that make up our New Testament they were all written, and they were all completed by the end of the first century. But you also need to know that at the, end of the, at the end of the first century, there is still no the Bible. At the end of the first century, there's thousands of followers of Christ. The church has gotten huge. There's thousands of, all over the Mediterranean, all over the Roman Empire, Greek and Jew and Roman followers of Christ. And there's hundreds of these copies There's hundreds of copies of these documents that now make up what we call our New Testament about the lives and the works of Jesus all kind of floating around to the different churches throughout the Mediterranean. And these these, these documents were meticulously copied and some people had, and some churches had, you know, one whole copy of what John said and some had a little bit of what Peter said and a little bit of what, what Luke said. And some people had multiple copies, some churches had multiple copies. Now listen, if you were a second century follower of Christ, If we were a second century church, can you imagine how valuable these documents would have been to you? Because probably up for most of us we had only been able to hear the stories of Jesus and little bits and pieces and hear it and, and 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 but we've never physically read we've never physically seen what the eyewitnesses saw what the eyewitnesses had to say about it we just and then all of a sudden someone shows up to our, our village and they say you are not know, believe this I have an actual copy from John I have an actual letter from Paul I have something that Matthew actually wrote I mean can you believe how can you imagine how precious those documents would be how valuable those documents would be. Now listen, I know this illustration falls far short of what the second and third century church, what second and third century followers of Christ are going through, but this is the closest thing I can think about it. So Pastor Pastor John, one of our pastors here at Relevant, um, his mom, Peggy, died five years ago. John was extraordinarily close with with Peggy. Uh, I'm very close with John and his entire family. Many of us are very close with Peggy. Um, And John obviously misses his mom very, very much. Well, last week, John and I were helping, we went out of town to help uh, John's dad move. He sold home, was moving home. And um, Joe, John's dad, hands John this, and it's a Bible. And he hands John the Bible, and Joe's like, I want to give this to you. And John's like, I have many Bibles. I'm a pastor. You know, Yeah, he, he hands John this Bible. And Joe goes, yeah, but this one's different because your mom got this Bible right after she put her faith in Jesus. And it was the Bible she used most of her life. And it's filled with just notes from her on page after page after page of what she was learning. His dad said, I want you to have it. Now, John has a lot of Bibles. How precious you think this one is to him? Before he even knew what's written on the, from his mom on the, how precious you think this one is? It's already precious. It already is valuable to him because of who wrote some things on some pages. In it, now, I realize that doesn't do justice for what the second and third century going through, where its followers of Christ were going through. But can you begin to imagine, as a second or third century follower of Christ, how you felt if you were able to get your hands on one of these documents? Two hundred years before there was a the Bible, there were precious and valuable documents written by the apostles eyewitnesses of Jesus, given authority by Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul. And these documents gave the stories and the words and the accounts of Jesus from the people that saw him and the people that knew him closest. And from the very beginning, because of who wrote these documents, they were considered valuable and reliable. They were considered sacred and eventually inspired, and before long, they were considered scripture. 200 years before one of these bad boys ever existed. Now, what you also need to know about this time in history is that the church faced immense persecution from the Roman Empire in the second and third centuries. Not because of what the church believed, but because of what they didn't believe. Like in Rome, you can have your gods, you can worship your gods, as long as you also worship the Roman pagan gods, made a sacrifice to them every once in a while, and declared Caesar as Lord, which was a problem for the church. Because they refused to declare Caesar as Lord because Jesus is our Lord, and they refused to make sacrifices to the Roman gods, which offended Caesar, and the Romans believe offended their gods. Now, the the Romans, very suspicious people, so whenever things went bad in the Roman empires, the Romans always looked for someone to blame, and when things went bad, they're thinking that they're going bad because our gods are disturbed, and why would our gods be disturbed? Well, it must be the growing number of Christians. It must be the growing number of the, the, what we call the church who don't acknowledge our gods. And the church was blamed for everything that went bad in the Roman Empire. Therefore, they were persecuted. The church was persecuted a lot. And finally, in the year 303, Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that resulted in the worst persecution of the church up until that time. In 303, every place of Christian worship was destroyed in the Roman Empire, it became illegal. For the, for the church to gather together. The church leaders were forced to offer sacrifices to pagan gods or be killed. And all Christian literature was to be burned. And if you had your hands on some Christian literature and you didn't turn it over, you were going to watch your kids killed, then your wife killed, before you were killed. And thousands of Christ followers risked, and lost their lives not protecting the bible it did not exist yet but protecting but instead protecting the documents written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul And the only reason these documents made it into the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, the only reason they survived the 4th century is because people believed that these eyewitnesses of Jesus, that the apostles, what they wrote was so valuable and so sacred that they had to be preserved. And they died rather than losing these precious documents written by Jesus' apostles. And something amazing Something extraordinary happened during this time also. Even through all this persecution, Christianity continued to spread all throughout the Roman Empire. It's unexplainable. It's also undeniable. Then, political change brought reform and an easing of hostility. And by 324 A.D., Constantine the Great became the undisputed emperor of the empire. And Constantine canceled all the edicts, and he allowed Christians to worship freely, and Christianity became the preferred religion in the Roman Empire. And for the first time ever, Christian scribes, Christian scholars were able to work in the open, work without fear, work in the daylight. And for the first time, they were able to bring these collection of documents together together. From Jesus' apostles. And they begin to, without fear of losing their lives and fear of being burned, they're able to meticulously copy these documents over and over and over again. And honestly, for me, on a very personal level, one of the most impactful things for me, for the historical reliability of the New Testament, is the sheer number of ancient manuscripts that we have. We have more than 1,000 times of the data from ancient New Testament, New Testament manuscripts than we do for, from any other Roman author. We have 25,000 ancient manuscripts from New Testament documents. 5,800 of them are in Greek. Compare that with, the, uh, with only two co- 2,000 copies of the second best represented ancient manuscript in history, which is the Iliad by Homer. It's a, It's crazy. The number of documents we have. Constantine. He became the emperor. And the stage was set for the assembly of the first tabiblia, or the Bible. But there's so much more to that story. And we'll pick it up there next week. Now, I told you, I'd try to answer some of your questions that you you know, we asked you this week to put your questions on social media. We asked a question on Monday. And, man, there were some great questions this week, some questions about the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, how to apply that. There were some questions about how we got the actual books that are in there and why the Catholic Bible has some more books and why, you know, why the certain ones were put in there and why some that maybe looked like they should be put in there, why they didn't get put in there. Great questions. I'll try to answer some of those questions here in the coming weeks. But before you come back next week, I just want to invite you to do one thing. Here's what I want you to invite you to do this week. Read the Gospel of John. That's it. Read this amazing document that John, Jesus' best friend, an eyewitness of everything Jesus saw, or everything Jesus did. An eyewitness of Jesus' death and resurrection. Read this amazing document that John wrote 2,000 years ago about what he saw and what he experienced. It's 21 chapters. 21 short chapters. Three chapters a day. I just want to encourage you, don't, don't read it through the lens of just for your information, though. Engage with it for your transformation, for God to transform you more into who He created you to be. For those, by the way, who are you know kind of struggling with faith and maybe walked away or considering walking away because it's good for you, but I don't believe it. I hope you choose to read the Gospel of John this week too. But I encourage you to ask this question as you read the Gospel of John: What's the "it" I don't believe? As you read the Gospel of John, I just encourage you to ask: What's the "it"? I don't believe. Remember, Jesus didn't physically write this, but Jesus is the reason we have it. So does the it you don't believe have anything to do with what John wrote about Jesus? See, I believe by wrestling this question to the ground this week, your mind and your heart will be more open to addressing your issues with the Bible in the coming weeks. And who knows, maybe, you'll come to a point of believing how good And how amazing the documents that make up this book really are. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just, uh, I'm amazed every time I think about this and the story of how this all transpired. And it's much bigger and more complex than I can do in 35 minutes. Um, So, Lord, I just pray we walk out of here just a little bit in awe. And I just want to end today just thanking you for sending your son, for dying on the cross in our place for our sins, and Jesus, for defeating death and rising from the grave. We believe you're the reason, not only for the Bible, you're the reason for everything. You're the reason we can be reunited with our Heavenly Father. You're the reason we can have eternal life. And I pray for every person in here who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, that in this moment, right where they are, they ask you to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. Guys, we read John this week, the This document he wrote, I pray our eyes are open, our hearts are open, and, man, we just are more amazed by what you did in this world when you sent your son. In Jesus' name, amen.